The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God. We are doing our review of the book of Romans. We completed our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. And at this point, we're going back and looking at the verses that we translated as well as the principles so that we can have a better big picture of what Romans is all about. Because when we're in that detailed verse-by-verse study, sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees. So we're going back and doing a review. We're picking up uh, this morning with Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We will take a look at those here in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin, if necessary, uh, as well as this opportunity for prayer gives us the a uh, few moments to quiet our minds, uh, clear our thoughts from all the busyness of life, and to focus our attention in on what it is that God's going to teach us and be humble so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to gather here at the church this morning. We thank you for all your grace provisions that made this possible. Help us to never forget that you have provided for us all along the way. We should never take for granted these blessings that we have, these opportunities to gather like this, the provisions that you've made in order for this to be possible. Help us to take maximum advantage of this opportunity by focusing our attention on what it is that your word can teach us this morning and that we would be humble before the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who can help us understand these truths and that we would dwell on these truths so that they would dwell richly within our souls and they, we would be able to make application in our daily lives of what we've learned from your word. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right. Now, it says, accept uh, one another, chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, but we broke it down into two sections, and the first section is verses 1 through 7, which we'll look at here. Now, we who are strong in faith ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak in faith and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through steadfastness and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives steadfastness and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that with one purpose you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us, to the glory of God. Let's look at some principles with regard to those verses. The bearing of one another's burdens is known as the law of Christ. So, in fact, uh, Scripture defines 
the idea of bearing one another one another's burdens as the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So we we uh, if you want to think of it this way, we are no longer under the Mosaic law, but we do have principles that are described in the New Testament as the law of Christ, the bearing of one another's burdens, the law of liberty, and so on and so forth, as we learn from various passages. So we have new guidelines by which we are to live. Don't think that just because we're not under the Mosaic law that we don't have any kind of guidelines. We do. And so one of the things that we're instructed to do as described as the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. It's extremely important in the body of Christ uh, to bear the burdens of others. Uh, And that doesn't mean that you allow the burdens of others to uh, cause you to uh, get depressed or discouraged or other things, but you can bear their burdens in terms of a, a really uh, fervent prayer life. You find out about what other people are going through and you can take those things to the throne of grace in your prayer life. You can come alongside individuals as you have opportunities and you can indeed share in the bearing of their burdens Uh, as other believers go through certain trials and tribulations. And one of the blessings that we get from doing that is if another believer goes through a particular trial and uh, we are going through that with them, if you will, in terms of bearing their burdens, we then, if we face a similar or, in some cases, the exact same trial later on in our own Christian walk, we have then been with them through their trial and we're better equipped to handle it ourselves. So there's actually edification that comes from this process. But it's also part of the function of the body. Us being baptized into Christ and into his body, we have certain things that we're supposed to do as a function of that, being in that body. And this is one of those functions, bearing one another's burdens. Loving one another is known as the royal law and represents the summing up of the commandments of the Mosaic law. So in James 2.8, we have the royal law. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So this is given in the Old Testament. You can see that's an Old Testament quote. But nonetheless, what we have is a description in the book of James that this is a present day guideline for us. The royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So If you want to think of it this way, what James is doing here is saying, you know what, that was given in the Old Testament, but still valid today. It's something we're supposed to be doing as part of the body of Christ today, loving our neighbor as ourself. In Romans chapter 13, Paul describes this as the summing up of the commandments. Uh, Romans 13, 9 and 10 says, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, You shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, as as the technical term I use is the operational sphere of love. If what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, if everything that that you're doing in your walk is guided by the love of Christ, agape love, that type of love, the love of Christ, then you are effectively in that process fulfilling the law. And that's why when we say, when we say that the law is fulfilled in us, right? We don't, we don't try to fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in us. And that fulfillment takes place 
through the transformation that occurs as God is transforming us day by day and we begin to be able to love with the type of love that Christ loved with. And as we do that, as we're able to function in that way with that kind of love, we basically will fulfill the commandments of the law because we're not going to do evil to one of our neighbors. And if you think about all the various commandments, that really kind of fits. And then really, and then if you're functioning in that kind of love, you're not going to have another God other than God himself, right? You're not going to have idols in your life. And just go through and think about it. It makes perfect sense if you're functioning in that kind of love. Seeking after our own self-interest is, in, is actually incompatible with agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, uh, this is that love passage that we talk about that you hear at weddings all the time. Uh, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Right? That's the phrase we were looking for. It does not seek its own. And what that really means is seeking after your own interests. Now, it doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. We've seen a passage uh, that describes the idea of don't merely look after your own interests, but also the interests of others. And so we are supposed to take care of ourselves, and that's in the function of stewardship. We're supposed to be taking care of ourselves because God has given us these bodies to function in on this earth. And we are to be good stewards of that and take care of it. But at the same time, our mind is really supposed to be focused intently on the interests of others. The interests of others. Instead, our goal should be to serve one another by building one another up, which benefits the entire body of Christ. You hear me say this all the time, but we, do, we need to be reminded of this. And the reason why we need to be reminded of this is in our fallen estate, our nature, we talk about our human nature. Well, most of the time I've heard that phrase used, by the way, that it's just part of human nature. Really what people are describing is the sin nature, actually. So in our human nature as fallen individuals, what is our tendency? Selfishness. Selfishness. We will tend towards serving ourselves and being very selfish. And so we need to be reminded of these things over and over again. Romans 14, 19 says, says, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, I don't no no raising of hands and no uh, giving of examples this morning. But how many times in your life can you think of an example where you did something or said something or whatever it was that, in fact, did not build up someone, but instead tore them down? Uh, I, I, I we would we, we would be here for the rest of the day if I tried to give you all of my examples. So all of us need to be cognizant of this and pay attention to, to this. And so you, if you're in a situation, that's a great question to ask yourself. Is what I'm about to do going to build this person up? And in many cases, it's not just what you're doing or what you're saying, but how. And the reason why that's significant is because if you say something to someone in love, that's very different than saying something to them in anger or jealousy, or whatever else it might be motivated by. If it's said in love, it can be edifying. If it's said the other way, then uh, it is a sinful activity. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and 26 says, So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We read this just the other day in our class, and the reality of it is we need to realize that as the rest of, and it's this is particularly true, by the way, of a body of believers in a local church, because this is our church family. Now, 
the church universal, this is true of the church universal. You know, when we have members of the church, for example, that are suffering in North Korea, when we have members of the church that are suffering in Africa, when we have members of the church that are suffering in China and so on, it affects all of us. It affects all of us. We suffer with them. In a local church family, though, we have more of an intimacy with one another because we are around one another all the time. We share, uh, we share, you know, fellowship very often. Hopefully, that's the way it's supposed to work in a local church. You share fellowship very often, and as part of that, then you you are you are very close with the believers that are in your local church family. So when one member of your local church family is suffering, all of us suffer with that individual. That's how it that's how it works. But if we build one another up. If we build one another up, if we have the same care for one another, then we can see that individuals will do well. Other individuals do well. Ephesians 4, we go to this passage a lot. Uh, This particular passage speaks to uh, the giving of gifted individuals. Verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. That's how that should read, pastor teachers. And by the way, of course, today in this, this, this part of the dispensation, we're no longer in the age of the apostles. We're now in the age of the local church. And so now in this age of the local church, we don't have apostles and prophets anymore. And if somebody tells you that they're an apostle, just say, okay, well, man, you must be really old because you had to be there and see Jesus in person. And so you got to be really, really old. We need to get this in the Guinness Book of World Records, right, or... Well, that was something, right? Um, but anyway, so, so there's no apostles. We don't have prophets anymore. There will be prophets again in the time of the tribulation, but there's no prophets today. We do have evangelists and pastor teachers, however. And these are gifted individuals that are given. You notice it says he gave some. So these are individuals that are given to particular local churches. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And that's why I maintain that the primary function, the primary function of a local church is the building up of the saints. The building up of the saints, the equipping of the saints, the building up of the body of Christ. That's what we're talking about as the primary function of a local church. Now, does a local church have an evangelistic function? Yes, absolutely. We are to reach out as individuals and as a church and spread the gospel message. No question about that. Because here it says, by the way, he gave some as evangelists, right, to the local churches. So there's supposed to be a a spreading of the gospel, no doubt. Primary function of a local church, however, is the equipping of the saints, the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. If I could get that little thing pop up, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are supposed to be maturing, maturing to a measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, sorry, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is the problem, this is one of the most serious problems that occurs for believers who do not grow in the faith, and they remain as children in the faith. There's two two serious problems. One of them is 
They lack, uh, uh, lack the depth of knowledge to have the ability to make application of God's word in almost any and every situation in their lives, right? So there's a problem with application. The second problem, which is more serious in my opinion, is the ability to be fooled by those who are trying to trick them, to teach them things which are not in accordance with Scripture. The more Scripture you know, the better equipped you are to recognize people that are trying to teach you something that is not true. So it's important to understand enough of the Bible and keep learning more and more of the Bible that you have a, you have a good, solid grounding in the Word so that you're not going to be carried away by every wind of doctrine. You're going to know what is trickery and what's not. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, notice that, in love. That's why I say what you do if it's done in love, it's powerful. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice we get back to that again. This is very important because whether you realize it or not, I mean, if you think about your own body, if you have one part of your body that is not doing well, like even if I just take it, I had this, I've had multiple knee surgeries. And so if you have a knee that's giving you trouble, it's hard to move around. It's hard to move around and you're going to struggle and you're going to have issues and it's going to affect you. If you have problems in your lower back, uh, that's one that will affect almost everything you do, including breathing. I mean, everything you do is affected by that. So if one part of your body is not working as it should, it affects virtually everything. Hold on just a second. It affects virtually everything. That's true of the body of Christ. If we have a member of the body that is not functioning as it properly should, look, look at what it says, by what every joint supplies. Everybody supplies. It's not just the pastor. Right. Everybody in the body supplies. Everybody does. And then it says, according to the proper working of each individual part. Well, what if what if you have a part of the body that's not working properly? They're having a problem. They're struggling. And I'm talking about spiritual struggles here. Well, that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, if you have a physical ailment like a knee that's giving you trouble, go see a doctor. You have a spiritual issue. Go see your pastor and spend some time in the word. I'd highly recommend that. You had something, Connie? Can you describe what speaking the truth in love is? Sure. Speaking the truth in love. Well, first of all, what, what truth are we talking about here? The uh, truth of the scriptures. That's exactly right. Uh, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example uh, of where you are and where you're not doing this. Uh, so let's say somebody is uh, engaged in some sort of an activity and I'm, I'm going to make it extreme so you can see it, obviously, but you, you can make application for yourself. Let's say somebody is engaged in some sort of an activity. Uh, let's say, it's, let's, I'll just give you an example. Let's say it's a church picnic. Somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing. Uh, I could walk up to him and say, why don't you read your Bible? You could probably learn about that, that it's not the right thing to do. If you'd spend enough time in your Bible, maybe you'd have known that, right? So I could do that. Was that speaking the truth in love? Not really. But what about if I walk up to them and I put my arm around their I put my arm around their back and say, I think what you're doing may be a little bit of a distraction to some people here. Whatever you're doing, well, yeah, 
Well, are you telling me that Jesse's been cheating in horseshoes? Is that what you're telling me? No. So, but whatever you can walk up and in love, you can talk to them and say, you know, I don't think what you're doing is honoring to to God right now. And and let me tell you why or whatever. And you real, you tell them with gentleness and reverence and love. And it's entirely different. It's going to be now what you can't do anything about how it's going to be received. That's up to the individual you're talking to. But what you want to do is honor God by the way you present the truth. So those two approaches, I made them pretty extreme, but think about that. You don't want to go up and you don't want to go up. You want to go up and show somebody the truth. You don't want to go up and hit them over the head with it, right? You don't want to bang them over the head with the truth. That's not done in love. That's not going to get you anywhere. People hate that. Um, but that speaking the truth in love is the truth is always uh, God's truth, the, the scriptures, but you want to speak it in such a way that it's presented in love and something that's actually going to have a chance to actually build them up. Does that make sense? Okay. And you had something? Yeah, I was just going to mention that when the body's not functioning right, even in a little paper cut in the wrong place, makes you not be able to... It's, boy, it's funny about that, isn't it? I, Jesse mentioned just a, something as simple as a little paper cut. It's funny to me, sometimes I get these paper cuts that for some reason it seems like I constantly touch that no matter what i'm doing i keep hitting that little paper cut and it's like no matter what i do it hurts and that seems like a little minor thing but it actually ends up affecting almost everything that you do a little paper cut and yet it affects everything that you do uh first thessalonians 5:11 says therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing you know you, know, you notice this is why this is important i believe we have a flock of believers here at lost pines that functions in love that speaks the truth in love, that is engaged in the process of building one another up in the faith. I believe that. But notice here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says he's, he's exhorting them. He says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. In other words, he's saying, you guys are already doing this, but keep doing it. Keep doing it. This is important. So he gives them the exhortation to do these things, even though they already are doing these things. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave us the greatest example of how to be a humble servant. I think that's pretty clear. In John 4:34, Jesus said to them, "My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work." So, what did He come to do at the first advent? He came to do the work of the Father. He came here uh, as a servant in that regard. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Develop this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he is in essence God, did not view equality with God as something which can be acquired, but divested himself of his divine privileges, taking the essence of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of mankind. And in this form, while being recognized as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So we see the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how he came and literally divested himself of his divine privileges, his divine capabilities. Not that he stopped being God. He couldn't stop being God. But in his first advent, he came and functioned just like we do. And part of the reason that's important, as Pastor Mark Perkins was teaching us uh, a couple of Sundays ago, Uh, because in order for him to be our kinsman redeemer, he needed to function on this earth the way we function. He had to truly be our kinsman. So think about all the things when you just go rewind and think about all the things when Jesus turned the water to wine, he did not use his divine ability to do that. 
He did not use his divine ability to do that. The father did it for him. He was not accessing divine capability to make that happen. That miracle, all those miracles, all the people that were healed, all of that that took place, all of that was done in the power of the father because the son had divested himself of his divine privileges and was functioning as a mere human being. Why? Because now his life truly is an example. I mean, if you think about it, if he does something in his life that's done with divine, his own divine power, we don't have that ability. Hold on. We do, we do not have that ability. We, we need to call upon God, and it has to be God that performs any of those kinds of things in, in our own lives. If it's healing us or giving us wisdom or whatever it is that comes from the Father, and he, he did the exact same thing in his life. And uh, if, he was, if he was able to, uh, for example, use, as, as Pastor Mark pointed out, if he was able to use his divine ability to get himself down off the cross, well, where would we be? Where would we be? We would be doomed. And he did not do that, however. Yes, sir. So Christ uh, relied fully on uh, the Holy Father, the Heavenly Father, to perform those miracles uh, as Peter relied fully after the, after the death of Christ to uh, perform the miracles that he did. All, yeah, all the disciples that performed any miracles and signs after Christ was gone and while he was here, for that matter, all of them did that in the power of the Father, just as Jesus did. That's exactly right. Now, they all, you, when we say the power of the Father, what, did Jesus rely upon the Holy Spirit? Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, so he relied upon the Holy Spirit as well. But it was the power of the Father accomplishing. Remember, the effectiveness of our ministry, any of, anything that's effective in our ministry, that effectiveness comes from the Father. And so the same was true of Jesus in his first advent. The effectiveness came from the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, there is. I mean, it's kind of a technical difference. I mean, a bond servant is the, the, the general gist of it is a bond servant is someone who is voluntarily uh, putting themselves into a servanthood under the other one. It's a it's more it's a voluntary uh, servanthood, a slavehood, if you want to phrase it that way, as opposed to being forced into it. A bond servant does so willingly. That's the big difference. There are other subtle differences, but that's the big difference. A bond servant is voluntarily submitting to the other. Does that make sense? So bond is like a promise to serve. Yeah, it's almost like ma- making a, a covenant to serve. That's not the right language, but it's of course sort of like that. Yeah, making a, a covenant to serve, and it's done voluntarily as opposed to being forced. Now, there's other. It's also stronger language. I mean, the bond servant is the idea of you know you're totally and completely committed to serving. So there's that aspect of it as well. There's other, other language, uh, other aspects to that language, but those are the big differences right there. Anybody else? Well, so there's, so you're, you're bringing up, so the idea of a bond servant, so bond servants, uh, so bond, there is language of that, but, but it's not used that way in the new Testament. Uh, the people who were, these people who call themselves bond servants of Christ, uh, the people that are a bond servant, they were not expecting anything in return. There was no monetary compensation. There was no compensation of any kind. So even though that word might be used that way elsewhere, it's not used that way in the New Testament. A bond servant is not compensated in that language. Like James, when he calls himself a bond servant, he's, there's no compensation for that whatsoever. Yes? So technically, could Thinking of the, the times that he got 
So according to so according the question is could could the disciples do anything that Jesus did? And the answer I have to give you is my understanding of it is they could do anything that he authorized them to do, right? So and basically he wasn't doing it himself, it was he was the father was authorizing it really. And so they were given great authority to do many things and yet in some cases they failed and it wasn't because they didn't have the capacity, they ha- they lacked the faith as you pointed out. Uh, now, did they, could they do anything and everything that he could do? I'm not sure that's true, but they could do an awful lot of things that he was able to do. That they were they that they should have done, yes, that they were given authority to do, and they should have done, but they didn't do. Like I think there's a case where they were unable to uh, they were unable to cast out the demon, and uh, and and he was talking about how that this this takes prayer, this takes a lot of prayer for this this one to be cast out, and so on. But uh, I think you know in many cases he was. He was frustrated with his disciples for their <laughs> for their lack of faith and what because because he was trying to show them by example what God could do right not himself but the Father could do through them and again that speaks to the importance of the kenosis because if he's if he's doing all of these things by his own divine capacity then how could he really expect them to be able to do the same thing but if he's doing it through the Father's enablement. Right. And, and and in yielding to the Holy Spirit, if he's doing it that way, then they could do the exact same thing that he was doing and they could accomplish anything that he could accomplish that they were given the authority to do. You know, there were certain things that they, I mean, the greatest example of this is a stupid example, but the greatest example of something that none of them could do was go to the cross and die for everybody's sins. Right. But there were other things that Jesus did in his lifetime that I don't think the disciples had the authority to do, but they were given great authority. They were able to perform many signs and wonders in their in their ministry, which that's another whole study, right? The, uh, the idea of signs and wonders and the purpose of all of that. Uh, Paul and other believers of his time had the Old Testament scriptures for their instruction. That's what was, that was their Bible, right? Think about it that way. First Corinthians 10, one through 11, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's not just me making up the idea the pre-incarnate Christ was with them. This the scripture says so. Uh, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, therefore, we have this, this passage which makes it clear that all of that was was recorded as for us for our instruction, so that we can look to them as examples, right? We can learn from all of them. I mean, as as difficult as it is, as it is, and it is frustrating for me to read through the Book of Judges, to see the roller coaster ride that the people of Israel go on, how well they do, and then how badly they fall, and how well they do, and how badly they fall. That's all for our instruction. Those are examples for our instruction, and at the time that we think about when you're, you're talking about uh, the writing of the New Testament scriptures at the time, 
that the New Testament scriptures were written, what was their Bible? It was the Old Testament. In fact, it was probably, uh, most likely, they were using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was their Bible. We have the whole Bible, you know, Old and New Testament now, but they didn't. They didn't. Today we have the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, for our instruction, which, along with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's so important to remember this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be mature. I like that translation better instead of adequate. May be mature, equipped for every good work. So the... That when that when this, we read this, this is written in Second Timothy, which, by the way, was toward the end. We're going to see that when we get to Second Timothy. It's toward the end of the New Testament writings. We have a couple of things that are written later. For example, the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation were written later. But the the letter Second Timothy is one of the last of the epistles of the New Testament. And so when Paul is writing this and saying all Scripture is inspired by God, he's talking about all the New Testament writings that were available and then all the Old Testament as well. And, of course, by application today, we can include those things that were written even afterward, right? We know that the Gospel of John, I mean, let me put it this way. Is there any question in anybody's mind that the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation belongs in our canon? (laughs) I don't think so. There shouldn't be. Because the Gospel of John is, is, a, is a powerful gospel. Uh, it is wonderful in terms of, of what it adds to the three synoptic gospels. And the book of Revelation is the capstone of the entire Old Testament in terms of prophecy. And it, it describes to us many of the things in detail that are going to happen in the end times. And so there, I don't think there's any question the Gospel of John and the, and the book of Revelation would fit into that category of scripture. I think we all would agree that it does. And so when he writes this, he's talking about all of it. Second Peter 1, 3 says, uh, bearing in mind that his divine power has freely given to us everything necessary for spiritual life and reverent conduct, that is uh, godliness. If you, that's how it was translated in the New American Standard, reverent conduct, through the full knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence of character. And here's important to understand that what is everything necessary? Well, first of all, don't we need access to the to the written word of God? I think we do. And then beyond that, don't we need uh, don't we need the capacity to be able to understand it and process it and learn from it? And that's what we need in terms of the, the Holy Spirit, because Jesus himself said that he will he will lead us into the truth. He'll help us to understand these things. And um, many of the things that Jesus said the disciples when he said them had no clue what he was trying to say but then after he was gone and uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost and thereafter uh, they were able to then go back and understand all of these things now it made sense and so we not only need the written record of scripture which God has preserved but we also need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things that's what we need for life and godliness we need those things. The scriptures through the ministry of the Holy Spirit teach us steadfastness in tribulation and provide encouragement, which leads to an enduring hope. We need to be able to be steadfast during times of tribulation. Romans 3, 5, excuse me, Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. 
knowing well that tribulation brings about perseverance. What is another way of saying perseverance? Steadfastness. <laughs> it's the same idea. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out generously within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen to that. If we compare that to chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, this is uh, where we are right here. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through steadfastness and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. That correlates right back to what we just looked at in Romans 5. He's basically reiterating what was said in chapter 5. Now may the God who gives steadfastness and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. And that's very important. I can't emphasize enough. If we could, we could all be uh, like-minded with regard to, to all sorts of things. But the thing that's glorifying to God and the thing that's edifying for us is when we're like-minded in accordance with Christ Jesus. Why do I say we could all be, we can be like-minded in other things? Well, for example, I might uh, I might talk to someone in here and they might agree with me that uh, they really, really, really want to see Jordan Spieth do really well in the PGA Tour. Well, that's great. We've got that like-mindedness. We both like Jordan Spieth, and we want to see him do really well on the PGA Tour. Is that glorifying to God? Is that going edify to edify me by cheering for Jordan Spieth? No, it's not going to. But when I'm like-minded in accordance with Christ Jesus, that's something that is edifying, and that's something that is glorifying to God. So that phrase is very important. By the way, I could also be I could also be like what Mike minded with somebody on some unholy things, right? Some unholy things. I could be like minded with regard to some things that are sinful, and that's certainly not glorifying to God. As believers, we should be of the same mind, and, and again, that's what I'm reiterating here, but only in as much as we are in accordance with the mind of Christ. First Corinthians two sixteen says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, first of all, I think when we say that we have the mind of Christ, I think one understanding of that is this right here. The written word of God, the Bible itself, is the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. But also think of it this way as well, as we're being transformed and being conformed to the image of of Christ, more and more and more, we begin to have the mind of Christ in terms of thinking the way that Christ would think about things. That's how we want to get in our spiritual life is we want to become closer and closer to thinking of things the way that he would think. So we have the mind of Christ in the Bible itself and the mind of Christ in terms of the transformation that's taking place in our minds. Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through empty, deceitful philosophy but boy, our world today is full of this empty, deceitful philosophy in accordance with the tradition of men and the fundamental principles of the world rather than in accordance with Christ. And believe it, this is happening to believers, people. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the examples. I'm sure you've seen it. It's happening to believers. Believers are buying into this stuff. They are being swept away by this deceitful stuff that's going on. The world, the lies of the world is consuming Many, many, many people in the church, be warned, be aware. Make sure you're fully equipped and armed up with the armor of God and ready to defend yourself against the attacks of the evil one because the world is really trying to consume born-again believers through this deception. 
Such like-mindedness, the right kind of like-mindedness, which is in accordance with Christ, allows for us to produce a unified testimony. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him that was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. All right? Now, this, of course, this economy of the early church is different than we have today, but certainly is, is there still a principle here of sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course there is. Of course there is. In fact, the idea of sharing is what the koinonia is. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as, you also, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is the message here? Unity. Now, if I look around the world today, do I see one faith? I don't. It's sad, but there's only one faith. There's only one true faith. There are many who are believing things that are not part of the, the faith which has been handed down to us. And so the, you know, the message of this, the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God and Father, all of these things speak to the idea that we should be unified in our faith, unified in our understanding of things. Unfortunately, the world has infiltrated churches, and unfortunately, traditions of men have infiltrated churches. So you see many things being done in churches that are not based on biblical truths, but instead are based upon traditions, which are, which are extra-biblical. In other words, beyond what the Bible says. And so these things, I mean, I mean so, but some of it even crosses over into the idea of heresy. Uh, so, for example, uh, I'll give you... Um, one example, and I'm, I'm forgetting the term right now, but in the Catholic Church, not all of them do, but many of them hold to the idea that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. Transubstantiation. Thank you. Now, here's the thing. We read a verse every time we have communion. It's Communion Sunday today. We read a verse. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing... He broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Now, let me ask you this. He's standing there. He's, he has not gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died. He hasn't been raised yet in his resurrection body. None of that has taken place. This is, in, this is, this is at the supper, right? This is at the supper. And he hands them a piece of bread and says, take, eat, this is my body. Now, let me ask you, is that actually his body or is it symbolic? He's still in his body. It has to be symbolic. So where do they get the idea of transubstantiation? I do not know, but it is not true to the scriptures because Jesus himself was making it clear that the bread is a symbol. It represents his body. It's not his actual body. It represents his body. Where does transubstantiation come from? It really, honestly, it's not from the Bible. It's traditions. It's traditions of men. And so you can go beyond even just simple things to actual, what I believe is heresy, to say that's his, that that's his actual body. Uh, the type of unity we're supposed to have, right, the right kind of unity, the type of unity within the body of Christ, even at the local church level, glorifies God the Father and 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the high priestly prayer here in John 17, verses 4 through 11. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, interestingly, at this point, by the way, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. So what we need to understand is Jesus was given more than one work assignment. He had work to do in his life, and he had work to do in his death. Amen? So what he's saying here is he completed that work assignment that he was to accomplish in his life. Having accomplished the work, work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, see, of course, there he's saying he pre-existed the universe. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf... I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Right? What is Jesus saying? He wants them to be unified. Now, can they be one truly to the full extent of what Jesus is saying here, one with the Father the way Jesus is one with the Father? No, but the point he's making is he and the Father are united as one. And he wants the disciples. Now, by the way, who's not, who's not present at this point? Judas Iscariot, he's gone. So at this point, he's not talking about him. He's talking about the rest of them, that uh, they would be one, united So that's something that glorifies. In that passage, we see that this glorifies God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Given that we have been accepted in Christ, we ought to accept one another. Simple concept, hard to do. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Excel in showing honor to one another. Showing honor to one another. We should excel in that. Uh, Romans 14.1-3. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of getting into quarrels about differing viewpoints. On the one hand, one person believes he may eat all things, but on the other hand, he who is weak in faith eats vegetables only. The one who eats meat is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat meat, and the one who does not eat meat is not to judge the one who eats meat, for God has accepted him. In other words, we've been accepted in the beloved, right? We've been accepted in the beloved, in Christ himself, and we ourselves should accept one another. All right. That's probably where we're going to stop because now we're going to get to the next set of verses for I state that Christ has become a minister to the circumcision and so on. It goes on from there. This is the next section, uh, verses 8 through 12, and we'll pick back up on that on Wednesday night. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to look at these verses and thank you for this whole section that we have in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14 and this part of 15 about how when it comes to when it comes to those gray areas, the things that are the little nits, we should be relaxed about those things and not uh, not get to the point when it comes to things that are significant like the true gospel message, when it comes to the 
significance of the of the communion service and the bread and the cup. These are things that we should not compromise on, the absolutes that are in your word. But when it comes when it comes to the things which are not specifically described as either right or wrong in your word, we should be relaxed about those things. We should be able to accept one another. We should strive for there to be unity in the body of Christ. And certainly we would want that unity to exist in the entire body on the earth. However, we for sure should be focused on that within the local church assembly, our local church body of believers. We should strive to have unity. And I believe this local church has that, but where we have division, Father, help us to see that and help us to grow stronger in our faith and grow toward that unity that Jesus desired for the body to have, that we would all be one. And Father, in the, in the areas where we are weak in our faith, help us to become stronger and help us to be humble enough to recognize that all of us have weaknesses in our faith. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.